Hello. Welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet. And today we're going to talk about Jordan Peterson's sixth rule from 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. And uh, that rule is set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world or criticize others or something like that. Uh, I was just recently talking with some friends of mine on Facebook about uh, a quote from Plato, where he says, The price of apathy towards public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. And uh, a friend of mine named Cody, who've known since high school, uh, expressed that he's got a little bit of a conundrum there because he pretty much just wants to live his life and be left alone and uh, you know he doesn't want to really get involved in politics and rule over other people. But there's so many others that want to get into politics and they want to rule over and insert themselves into and d- disrupt the ability to manage one's own affairs so at what point do you say, you know what, in order to manage my own affairs, I have to get involved in politics because my liberties, my freedoms are being eroded one by one. And so this is actually my business, right? And, and that's a great question. I think it is. Um, I've wondered that myself, uh, re- you know, in recent Weeks and months, I got to know uh, Tanya Rost here in Sydney, Montana. She was running for House District 35. And uh, I think she had a great platform, a great attitude towards it. I think she definitely had uh, the attitude of public service instead of career politician. She's a businesswoman, as a mother, as a wife. Uh, is a regular person. And she said, hey, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. If you vote for me, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm I'm about. If you have any questions, please ask me. I'm an open book. Super cool about it. I thought that was really, really neat. First time I've ever talked with somebody who was running for political office. Uh, I've never talked with anybody, spoken with anybody uh, who actually was a uh, politician so to speak, I've always, it's it's kind of funny, I suppose, as much as I talk about politics, I've never actually spoken with a a politician. Uh, This is the closest I've ever gotten. But she said something to me about how, uh, because I I asked, I was like, you know, what can I really do to uh, help increase your uh, chances of winning here, this primary, Republican primary? Because I, I would really like to see you win. I think you represent my convictions, my values. I'd like you to take those values and convictions uh, to Helena, to the Montana State Legislature, and uh, to to vote with them, to argue with them, to bring bills if necessary, to vote on bills and measures accordingly. And uh, you know what she said was, you know, well, just just keep on uh, trying to educate people. I think that's really great. We have. Our democracy, our republic depends upon uh, informed people who are engaged and have the right ideas about things. Uh, They they can't uh, monitor the state of affairs and uh, make decisions accordingly if they don't know what's going on. They don't have a mind, uh, an attitude to uh, be involved, be engaged, know what's going on. And, uh, and so that was the first part. And the second part of what her advice was on, on how I could help or what I could do was, uh, you know, I've got all these sons. She heard about that. She knew about that. Saw pictures of them. Uh, she says, you know, raise your sons to be men because our country needs men. It needs men, men, men who are men. Raise your boys to be men and, uh, and then to be leaders someday and to be outspoken and vocal and principled and courageous and virtuous and all of these things. That's what would help immeasurably. And then you yourself, 
you know, once your children are older and they're a little bit more independent and, uh, you know, your wife and you have more resources to uh, free up and put elsewhere, you should think about running for office at some point, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so be thinking about that and, and preparing for that. And so she had this advice, and I thought that was uh, you know, super encouraging of her. And uh, and so now I've been thinking about it with regards to Jordan Peterson's uh, sixth rule in 12 Rules for Life, an antidote to chaos. Uh he says that uh, you should set your house in perfect order before you cr criticize the uh, the world. So what does Peterson mean when he says to set your house in perfect order? Uh, I think uh, I'm reminded of a Navy SEAL graduation commencement speech. Uh, that uh, went viral here recently where uh, I think he was a Navy SEAL commander, something like that. Uh, real tough dude with a, a big reputation said that if you want to change the world, start by making your bed. And he gave this really inspiring uh, talk about how the Navy SEALs, as hard as they train and, and as many challenges as they uh, face and in the training for doing a very difficult job, they do some very difficult things to weed out those who are going to be physically and mentally weak uh, and would jeopardize the team, jeopardize the mission uh, if they were not eliminated. Uh, you know, all throughout their physical uh, exercises, uh, they are required to make their bed every morning. That's the first thing you do. You make your bed, and there's a certain way you do it. You do it properly. You do it neat and tidy. You make that bed uh, right and tight and straight. And how that uh, sets the tone for the rest of the day is his point. And if you can make your bed then you can do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's a simple task, but it starts things off on the right foot. And it also is a way of taking responsibility from the very beginning of the day, taking responsibility for your life, right? Uh, you know, Peterson's uh, got several things to say along similar lines in his book where he says, you know, if you want to change the world, start by cleaning your room. Uh, you know, you, you think that sounds like a super easy thing compared with changing the world, but you actually go to, to start cleaning your room and find out how difficult it is. Even just that little bit uh, can be pretty difficult. And in your own small way, though, if you clean your room and you make your bed, then you have made the world just that much little bit of a better place. Have you not? Uh, if you are taking care of your affairs in a way that is responsible and orderly, you're not being a menace to others, you're not being an eyesore, you're being considerate, you're prepared to take action, then Everybody doing that would make the world a better place. You doing your part maybe inspires the next person. They look over and they see how nice it is when the bed is made or when the room is clean or whatever, when your house is tidy, when your yard is mowed. And I say all of this not as somebody who does all of these things I'm mentioning perfectly. My lawn needs to be mowed right now, actually. And my weeds need to be whacked right now, actually. Uh, my desk is not uh, perfectly in order, uh, much less my house being perfectly in order. But I think there is something to this. You know, uh, Jesus says at one point, you know, why is it that you say to your brother, 
let me remove that speck from your eye when you've got a plank sticking out of your own. You, know, you hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to help your brother remove the speck from his eye. Note that Jesus is not saying you're wrong to want to help your brother remove the speck from his eye, but he is saying you're a hypocrite. If you care more about a speck in your brother's eye than you do a plank in your own, you don't have to wrestle with, chase down, cajole, argue with, wrestle with your neighbor to get the plank out of your own eye. In fact, he's probably been looking at that plank sticking out of your eye and thinking, man, I wish he would do something about that. And then if you start criticizing the speck in your brother's eye, even as there's a plank sticking out of your own, well, then you've just uh, sent your neighbor over the edge because he's like, dad gummit, how is it? He's going to criticize me for this little thing. Meanwhile, he's got all kinds of problems of his own. Where does he get off? Who does this guy think he is? Right? Now, where I get confused in all of this, and, and this is the genuine question that I have, right, is where does setting your house in perfect order, where does that go from being your literal house to being your community, your church, your nation. You know, do we fail to see that we are responsible for uh, these spheres and to speak and to act and to do uh, what is true and good in those spheres because they are our business? <coughs> I think all too often we convince ourselves that our business is confined to things like making our bed and going to work, making a paycheck, paying our bills, mowing our yard. Once we've done those things, then <clears throat> it's a leisure time because we have met all of our responsibilities. And meanwhile, we fail to see that our responsibility includes our street, our block, our town, our county, our state, our nation. You know, at one point in the scriptures it says, he who fails to provide for the needs of his own household is worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel. And that is to say, if you're a Christian and you're just loafing about and you don't rise to the occasion when you could to help your family, to provide for your family, then you might as well not even be a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian and you're acting that way, shame on you. You are negligent. You have a responsibility. Someone might say, well, I'm making my bed. Isn't that enough? No, it's not, actually. <laughs> if you want to know the truth, that is not enough. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Plato, again, the price of apathy towards public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. What would be the alternative to apathy toward public affairs? That would be that you're paying attention and that you're taking responsibility for public affairs. You know, if you're driving by uh, an alleyway, you look down and you see there's a man being uh, beaten and robbed. There's a woman being manhandled as if she's about to be raped you say well that's all very well and good i'm not that person thank god sucks to be them i've got places to be it's not my problem none of my business i'm going to stay out of it that's apathy and one could argue that those are both public affairs and that there are many variations on those two scenarios I just uh, described. Man being beaten and robbed, woman about to be raped. Those could be symbolic of many, many other things in public affairs. And the price of apathy is to be ruled by evil men. Because the evil man that you're looking the other way as he 
beats and robs and rapes won't be content with those victims that you're watching him abuse now. Once he's done with them, if he notices you, he's going to be on to you. And even just you trying to escape notice and to avoid being seen and noticed and avoid being conspicuous, you're already paying the price. He already rules over you. If you're afraid to go out and be noticed to get his attention because you know what he would do, you've already set the tone. You know that what goes around comes around. As you sow, so shall you reap. And when he is doing those things to you because you haven't spoken up beforehand, tried to save his last victim from him, you don't expect anybody's going to try and save you if you're the next victim. Now, Bobby Noe, a friend of mine from Ohio, he quotes Titus 3.9 in relation to my share of Plato. The price of apathy towards public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. In Titus 3.9, Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And that is meaningful. It's important. One could also point to uh, where Jesus says, Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is holy. You know, when he says, don't cast your pearls before swine, he says, you know, all they're going to do is trample them underfoot and then come and tear you to pieces. Uh, so also, I think of a passage from Romans, chapter 12, verse 18. Paul writes there also, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that is to say, also, Implicitly, it is not always possible. If Paul says, if possible, it must mean that sometimes it is not possible. And if he says, so far as it depends on you, it must mean that it does not entirely depend on you. Which is to say that we do an injustice <clears throat> to truth and goodness if we assume any time there is a lack of peace, that it is our fault, that it's everybody's fault equally. If you just ascribe blame evenly to everyone, take all accusations as being credible enough to blame everybody all at the same time so that we can excuse ourselves for being apathetic and staying out of it. Then we have abdicated our responsibility as far as Micah 6.8 goes, where it says, He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. We do not understand that at all. If we're going around and saying to the man being beaten and robbed, well, you should have known better than to walk down this alley at this time of night with a wallet, with those nice shoes on, not carrying a gun. You kind of were asking for it. You kind of brought this on yourself as well. You're just as much to blame as the guy that is beating and robbing you. If we say to the woman, well, what were you thinking walking on this side of town dressed like that? With your hair all done up. What did you expect was going to happen? You're just as much to blame for being raped as the guy that raped you. And we say those kinds of things because we're looking for an excuse. If everybody's equally guilty, then we don't have to pick a side. We don't have to stand up to the burglar, to the robber, to the abuser of men, to the rapist. We give that kind of moral equivocation when we do not care about justice at all, when we do not want to have to pay any kind of a price, take our attention off of making our beds, mowing our grass, and then entertaining ourselves with the remainder of our time.
I think there's a certain point uh, Jordan Peterson is making that is apropos. Set your house in perfect order. Insofar as that echoes what Jesus said about waiting to remove the speck in your neighbor's eye, your brother's eye, until after you've removed the plank from your own eye. Insofar as Jordan Peterson is echoing that when he says, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. I think he is uh, on the straight and narrow. He's testifying to the truth. But there's also a point at which it can become uh, unhealthy, where we abdicate our responsibility, where we fail to see that our house includes these matters. I mean, if the woman is being raped, as you drive by that alleyway and you notice, you don't say, oh, shoot, I forgot that I needed to make my bed. I didn't make my bed this morning. I'm going to go home, take care of that. No, you deal with the matter at hand because all of a sudden that is your business, right? And in your downtime, when the crisis has passed, when you've dealt with that, when you've resolved it, Okay, great. You know, rather than just sitting on your couch, vegging out, watching TV, binge watching Netflix, playing your Xbox, by all means, go make your bed, go mow your lawn, go balance your budget, go search your pantry, go sweep your floor, etc., etc., etc. Now, someone might point out at this juncture, and I think they'd be right to that if you put the needs of others uh, too far ahead of your own basic necessities taking care of uh, your uh, responsibilities your private responsibilities making your bed mowing your yard etc etc that that's not sustainable and eventually you're going to run yourself into the ground you're not being responsible and once you have run yourself into the ground, well, then you're no help to anybody. And that's a, that's a fair point if anybody is thinking it, and I agree with it. Uh, but what I'm speaking to is, is not uh, neglecting your own responsibilities in the interest of just flying around the place and trying to save the world, attending to everybody else's business. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is not just exclusively focusing on your own interests, but also looking after the interests of others. And so then if uh, you have taken care of business, you have uh, what you need, you have made your bed, you've mowed your yard, etc. then uh, according to the, the uh, teachings of Jesus, where he says, you know, first remove the plank from your own eye, uh, you know, the, the next part that follows is then you will see clearly. You will be able to see clearly in order to help your brother remove the speck from his eye. And so the idea is not just that we are self-indulgent, that we only look after, you know, make sure that our lawn is just obsessively groomed so that our lawn looks the best anywhere around not that there's anything wrong with having a nice looking lawn. I like it when my lawn looks nice. But you don't stop there. You also, you know, if you have a minute, maybe you uh, help your neighbor out as well. And you look past just your own needs. In some respect, if you do it right, you know, you tending to your lawn might encourage your neighbor also. He looks over at yours. He looks over at his. He says, well, man. I'd really like it if my lawn looked like that. So maybe I should do something about mine. You know, so you can have maybe a ripple effect where you affect others in a positive direction like that. But uh, it definitely should not be that we uh, are only looking after our own affairs and then we stop and we th think that is sufficient. Uh, Jesus doesn't teach that. 
when he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think there is something in that uh, which speaks to not just making your own bed and stopping. You know, if I uh, make my bed and that is a part of me loving myself as I'm taking care of myself, then it follows also that, you know, hey, maybe I, maybe not exactly going over and making my neighbor's bed, uh, but, you know, if I feed myself and I see that my neighbor is hungry, then loving my neighbor as I love myself would mean that I'm going to share some food with my neighbor. Because I, if, I, if he were me and I were taking care of myself, I would feed me when I'm hungry. So when I see that my neighbor is hungry and I have extra food to share, I'm going to feed my neighbor. If I see that he's homeless, I'm going to try and do something about that. I would look for a way to put myself in shelter so that I'm not exposed to the elements. If I were him, if he were me. So even me being me and him being him, I'm going to try and find a way to resolve his housing crisis if I can, if I have the wherewithal, which I may not, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, that is what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, I want to draw a uh, uh, careful distinction here between what I've just described on an individual basis and uh, political parties and organizations and even churches, strong-arming, manipulating, coercing uh, individuals to then join a group effort. You know, you're going to be extremely manipulative, put a guilt trip on people, uh, even threaten them. In the case of the government, you know, we're going to have all these welfare social programs. We're going to uh, argue as politicians that you have to vote for these things, you have to support these things, you have to be for these things, if you oppose these things, if you criticize these things, if you question these things, if you want to remove these things from the government's uh, docket, then you are a monster, you're heartless, you don't, you hate children, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're anti-poor people, you're, you know, whatever. And uh, that is not a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Jesus Jesus' command to love your neighbor as you love yourself uh, is not fulfilled by uh, you going and hijacking the government and then coercing all of your neighbors to give, uh, you know, just an usurious amount of their money to you so that you can redistribute it as you see fit. That is, that is not uh, a fulfillment of that command, despite... Uh, what some have claimed. Uh, if they have claimed otherwise, then they are full of it, uh, to put it in uh, the correct theological uh, parlance. They are full of it. Uh, it's false teaching. It, it, it really is. And it's a false gospel. you know. And I think insofar as the church sometimes uh, gets into guilt-tripping people, uh, it, it leaves the path of good taste and uh, and the biblical tradition, you know, uh, and not just tradition, because that makes it sound like it is uh, something you know cooked up by men. Uh, the scriptures uh, we read and we believe as Christians are God breathed, right? And they're not produced by the will of man; they're produced by the will of God. God said, "Hey guys, I want you to write this down. This is going to be important. Take note." And so. When these things were written down, uh, such as, you know, when Jesus teaches, love your neighbors yourself, uh, you know, such as when uh, I believe it's Paul writes that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, right? And and he says, you know, that we should give not grudgingly, not as if we're being coerced, not as if we're being strong armed. Uh, that is significant. You know, and how how many uh, taxpayers have you seen that are quote unquote cheerful givers? Maybe Warren Buffett, but I think that was as much as not because uh, Barack Obama as president was uh, helping to uh, advance things that were uh, beneficial to Warren Buffett's business enterprises. But uh, anyway. That's another story. That's that's a story for another day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. 
And God's not impressed with false motives for giving and for charity either. You know, so if the, if the reason we're giving is because we've been guilt-tripped into it, what credit to us is that? Because we're afraid of someone being upset with us. If we don't give, uh, that's not love. It's worthless. If we're doing it because we're trying to curry favor with somebody and get a reputation for being generous or make up for some other uh, misdeed, something that we did that was wrong, that was dumb, uh, was in poor taste, we're trying to get forgiveness for that. Uh, that's not love. That's, that's self-love, but you're not doing that for the best of others. And so it's worthless. You know, God's not impressed with that. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you think of Ananias and Sapphira. And they uh, are proof positive in the New Testament that uh, God is still a God of justice. He's not just a God of mercy. He's not a pushover. He uh, also uh, has a side that is very uh, swift. Uh, once uh, someone's time is up and they have uh, mocked him, if their uh, sin is... Uh, ripe for judgment, and he is capable of judging. He doesn't just give grace, 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 grace forever and ever to everybody, regardless of their attitude, regardless of their uh, repentance or lack thereof. So Ananias and Sapphira, for those that are uh, not familiar or don't remember, they're this wealthy couple that when it was in vogue in their church to sell property and give the proceeds to the church for uh, taking care of the poor or what have you. Uh, they sold some property, claimed that they had given all of the money to the church. They didn't. They kept money back, and they were going to spend it on themselves. And uh, to be clear, that's not what got them in trouble, keeping some money back. What got them in trouble was that they claimed, they trumpeted, that they had given all the money to the church. And if they had kept the money, and, and, and they're told this, by the apostle uh, who calls them in. He call, they get called into the principal's office, asked to account because the Holy Spirit reveals that, hey, you guys took this money. You know, uh, you, you took money that you claimed you had dedicated to God, you had given it to the church, and you, you didn't actually give it to the church. You kept that for yourself. He calls them into account, and he says, if you guys wanted to keep some of the money, it was yours to keep. You didn't have to give that money. You're not in trouble for keeping the money. You're in trouble for lying. That's what you're in trouble for. And, uh, and God ends up striking them dead. And the fear of the Lord uh, fills the early church because God takes it super seriously that uh, we would lie, that we would operate under false pretenses. We would pretend to be super virtuous and honorable when uh, our motives are untoward. God takes it very seriously, and he will judge it. In that case, he judged it very swiftly. In uh, other cases, he takes his time, and maybe we won't see judgment this side of uh, eternity. Maybe we only get to see that when Christ returns or when he calls us home. We stand before the judgment seat, and uh, he pronounces it. But in any event, uh, it is remarkable to me that uh, Ananias and Sapphira keeping back their money uh, is not something that they were scolded for. Uh, rather, they were scolded for lying and pretending they had given their all when they, in fact, had not. And uh, so, you know, I think uh, the relevant point here, as far as uh, the larger topic of, you know, looking after the affairs of the public. As Christians, are, are we looking only to our own affairs or are we looking out for the interests of others? You know, it says at one point in the scriptures, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others as more significant than yourselves. That passage fits like a glove with Jesus saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others as more significant than yourselves. You know, we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
And we are to take responsibility, especially for uh, those of our own household. So, you know, for me, uh, for example, I'm a husband. My wife and I will have been married for 12 years here in November, November 25th, actually. Uh, I have seven children. My wife and I have seven children. They're hers, too. Uh, she was there. I'm sure they're hers. <laughs> uh, you know, we have seven children, and uh, that is my household at a bare minimum. Uh, we also have a dog, too, but I don't think my responsibilities are, you know, it's not. He, he's not my fur baby. Uh, <laughs> man, that just creeps me out when people refer to their pets as fur babies. Just small side note there, footnote. Uh, we'll come back to that at a later date, another episode. But, uh, you know, uh, that's my household. I'm responsible for my wife and for my children. And the scriptures say those who, per, who uh, do not provide for the needs of their own house are worse than infidels. So if I were loafing around and my kids are hungry, my wife is hungry, I don't have good clothes, we're homeless, uh, everything's falling down around us and I'm just loafing and I'm not working and I'm not trying to bring an end to that and uh, make sure that we have what we need, provide for their needs. If I'm ignoring their cries for help, then I am worse than an unbeliever. Uh, and, and, and does it extend beyond that? You know, I have a, a father, I have uh, parents-in-law, I have uh, brothers-in-law, I have sisters-in-law, I have, you know, I have a brother, I have, you know, I've got uh, extended family. Are those also, in some respect, the, the members of my household? In some respect, you know, I have a responsibility for them. I feel a responsibility for them, for their well-being. If I saw one of them in trouble, in crisis, I would not think, well, I'm just going to keep going and hope that some random stranger takes care of that for them right if it's within my power to help them i'm going to help them any way i can because we all recognize internally we know it instinctively we have a responsibility for our household for our kin for our kind for our people and you know also if i extend that uh further and further you know let's say i'm uh, driving around and I see, you know, hey, there's a somebody from my church is broken down on the side of the road and they're not uh, able to change their tire or fix whatever it is or they need to ride to town or their cell phone's not working or what, you know, whatever. Do I keep driving? Well, if I do, uh, you, you think I'm a scoundrel and you're right. Uh, you know, if I see them on the side of the road, I don't just think, well, some other stranger will, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. Somebody will take care of that. No, I recognize that they are, in some respect, my people. And so I need to stop and take care of them. I need to help them, right? And I have a greater responsibility to them than uh, I would to just any stranger, right? Uh, you know, that's, I think, what it means to uh, do nothing from selfish ambition, but to, uh, consider others as more significant than ourselves to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Uh, that means that we don't just say, well, you know, I've got places to be, I got stuff to do. I had plans for this afternoon. I want to get to, and I, I just, I don't feel like going and helping that person right now. I don't know how long that's going to take. It could be a big issue. It sucked in. There goes my day. You know, that would be selfish ambition talking. That would be self, uh, love, self-absorption, talking uh you know the, the appropriate responsible thing would be to say no you know what that's important i have a responsibility i'm not going to be able to rest i won't be able to live with myself if i turn the other way and i and i won't be able to face them again you know i'm gonna it will break relationship especially if they see that i could have helped and i just kept driving i turned a blind eye to what was going on uh so i uh, I think, you know, all of those questions as to uh, how we approach uh, the needs of others, um, you know, they're, they're not always cut and dry. They're not always super simple. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you don't have an abundance. You know, your neighbor's hungry and you're hungry too. And you've got a piece of bread 
and half a piece of bread, you're still going to be half hungry if you gave your neighbor half a piece and you have the other half. And there's situations like that with time. You know, I need, I don't just want to go do something else. And that's why I am hesitating to help this other person. I need to go do this other thing. I need to get this done today. I don't know if I'm going to have time to do what I need to do for me and what I need to do for that person over there. And sometimes too, you know what? You just can't help everybody all at once. Uh, you know, I think one of the consequences of uh, being a Christian and having a Christian worldview is that we do feel a greater sense of responsibility, but also there's a limit on our responsibility that we feel as Christians because we're not the atheist who believes that we are the uh, supreme authority. Uh, we recognize that God is sovereign over the affairs of man and that God is attending to uh, the orphan, uh, the widow uh, that we've never even met, we don't know the name of. Uh, there are far too many needy people in the world for us to help all of them all at once by ourselves. That is a job too big for finite man. That is a job that, you know, hey, maybe you can put an organization together and you can help as many people as you can. That's great. Kudos. You know, high five. Well done. As long as you're doing it out of love, not out of self-interest, not just trying to look like a show off and, and look really uh, pious and, and all that. But ultimately, you know, God looks after those people. And so at a certain point, the Christian is able to say, you know what, Lord, I feel uh, pained for this person over here that I can't help right now, but I'm going to pray for them. I know that you can provide for their needs. You can take care of it. You see what's going on. I trust you. And we can rest in that. And there ends up being a limitation on how much anxiety we uh, feel as a result of our theology, as a result of our worldview, incorporating God into the mix. He's not irrelevant. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to I wanna touch on, uh, you know, as a, a closing thought here, uh, this debate uh, about, well, like actually two debates. Let's let's tackle two, uh, not in depth, but briefly, and to tie them into this question of setting your house in perfect order before you criticize the world, before you criticize others, removing the plank from your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, let's uh, let's talk about immigration, for instance. Yeah, I read a really great article in the Reformed Conservative. Uh, I have a friend, Bobby McPherson, who is uh, the blogger uh, at that site. And uh, he wrote an essay uh, about the problem with borders here very recently. I shared it. Uh, he had written it initially as a Facebook post. It was a result of an uh, argument, debate, whatever you want to call it. He'd gotten into on Facebook. and He wrote it kind of in a huff, as he put it, and then it uh, morphed or he uh, adapted it to the blog, which I've done uh, several times in my blogging. And uh, it, it definitely is a little bit of an adjustment because you get heated and then your writing style is faster paced, more aggressive. And then once you've calmed down, you're trying to edit and it can be a little bit like uh, throwing cold water in your calm state on uh, some of the fire. But anyway, uh, he wrote this article, The Problem with Borders, and he talks about this love for home. Uh, I believe it's uh, the, the Greek term is oikophilia, love of home, and how this is uh, it's, it's not a uh, nefarious thing, the way that the Democrats, the way progressives, the way that globalists are trying. They are just, man... I mean, five years ago, nobody would have been thinking like this outright. But because the mainstream media, because the left is so uh, relentless, because they are just uh, on a loop, they'll play talking points over and over and over and over again in a million variations from a million different directions until they've brainwashed the people. And then once you get the people regurgitating this stuff to each other, it becomes just this echo chamber where you can't hear anything else. But the uh, uh, immigration debate right now, 
Uh, Donald Trump wants to build a border wall. He's deporting, wanting to deport uh, quicker illegal immigrants, people that have entered this country uh, in violation of our laws and statutes. We've clearly expressed there's a process by which we want, if you come into this country from another country, we want you to check in and ask for permission first. When I go over to your house, I don't just walk. I don't just walk right in. I knock on the door. I ring the doorbell. I wait for you to answer and invite me into your home because I recognize that's your home, and I'm trying to be polite and considerate. If I break into your home, you have every right to throw me out if I'm not a welcome guest. Uh, and if I'm not a welcome guest in your home, uh, and I realize that on the front end that I am, uh, I mean, I'm risking being unwelcome upsetting you, then uh, it begs the question of why am I there actually? Am I there for your benefit? Am I there to be a good citizen, uh, to add value uh, for you and yours? Or am I there to steal? Am I there to take things that don't belong to me? Am I there to uh, hurt you? You know. So anyway, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, he campaigned on uh, doing something about illegal immigration, building a border wall, and Mexico is going to pay for it, and I quote, uh, campaigned on that, tough on border security. The Democrats have tried to make that into racism. He hates brown people. He hates foreigners. He hates immigrants. Well, the irony being, his wife is not from around here. She speaks with a uh, distinctly European accent, she is European. She speaks, I think, five, six languages. He's obviously not entirely anti-immigrants uh, because he married one. So there you go. Uh, the first lady is an immigrant. <laughs> uh, but no, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how he hates immigrants. Uh, give me a break. But anyway, you've got this uh, argument about, you know, well, eh, what? What's the big deal about borders anyway? Do we really even need borders? I mean, come on. Like, people are getting upset. Like, let's just drop it about the borders already, right? I mean, this it's not worth all this. Trump, you just quiet down. Like, just drop it. My, my neighbors, my coworkers that are Democrats, they're getting upset with me because they know I voted for you. And I'm just tired of facing all these questions and accusations that I'm a racist. So just just drop it. Just just leave it alone. And... And so that's that's what's happening, right? The Democrats, the mainstream media, uh, are are just uh, repeating over and over and over and over again that borders, nations, immigration laws, all of that stuff is racist and bigoted and hateful. And if you really loved people, you would just open the floodgates and you'd let anybody come in for whatever reason, you know. And you don't want to have the the question. Uh, we can't we can't ask the question of. Are they here legitimately? Because to ask the question implies suspicion, and then you're you're saying that they're guilty until proven innocent, and that's uh, you know, oh, due process is going out the window if we deport people in an expedited fashion as we see them crossing over the border illegally, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you know, my friend Bobby McPherson he writes this article, the problem with borders, and he talks about, hey, you know what, love of home is uh, a good thing. We should prefer our home. We should love our home. We should have some loyalty to our home and to our people. That is not a bad thing. Now, if for the sake of that good thing, you then go do evil things, well, that's not good, right? You know, uh, you know food is a good thing. Now, if I'm going to go murder somebody because they've got a piece of uh, chocolate uh, cheesecake and I want that. There's nothing wrong with the chocolate cheesecake, but there's something very wrong with me wanting it so much that I'm willing to murder somebody to get it, right? Uh, so we don't do evil things. We're not permitted to do evil things in the interest of securing for ourselves good things. But it is a good thing to prefer our home to others, to prefer our family to others. I married my wife and it is a good noble praiseworthy thing for me to prefer my wife to any other woman that is a good thing if that is not the case then there's a problem 
it is a good thing for me to prefer my children to other people's children. Not that I'm mean or nasty or unpleasant to other people's children, but that I give special attention, special care to my children because I'm responsible for my children. I'm not responsible for the whole world's children just as much as I am responsible for my children. First and foremost, make your own bed. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Remove the plank from your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye, etc., etc. So that's the first thing. I think uh, touching on immigration, I think it's very well and good that we have uh, some kind of a process by which we will let some people in if they are fleeing persecution. I think the Christians from the Middle East who have wanted to get away from ISIS, who've wanted to get away from uh, Muslim persecution, beheading, uh, rape, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think we should absolutely let them into the U.S., find places for them. I am for that. Uh, I'm not for bringing Syrian refugees in or, or migrants uh, who just want jobs and just want to harass Western women and uh, wage jihad. Not for that. But I am for bringing in, uh, you know, certain uh, asylum seekers and letting them have safe refuge here in the U.S. Uh, people that have been loyal to us overseas, you know, uh, translators for our military in Afghanistan, in Iraq. I think we should bring them and their families over if they served faithfully and they helped us. Uh, for us to pull out and leave them behind is a death sentence, and it is in no way uh, gratitude for them having put their lives on the line put their families' lives on the line. I think we should absolutely bring them uh, to the U.S., give them a home here, give them complimentary citizenship uh, in, in gratitude. But uh, I don't think that uh, we do the world any favors, we don't do ourselves any favors, if we uh, open the floodgates, we let just anybody and everybody come in, no restrictions just because the Democrats want to have more voters, right? And just because they hate America and just because they're trying to push for the collapse of America because America is everything that's wrong with the world, according to their narrative, just so that they can have Marxism implemented here. I don't think we should just open the floodgates and let anybody come in. I don't believe that we should be against border security and immigration law enforcement. Uh, as racist just because they're trying to destroy Donald Trump and the Republicans. I don't think that's right. Uh, I think also too, uh, you know, just real briefly, I'll mention the uh, abortion issue. So uh, Chief Justice uh, Kennedy, Roberts, anyway, uh, who was it? Anyway, let me see here. One second. It was... Oops. Kennedy, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Took me a moment. Uh, I'm not as familiar with all of the Supreme Court justices just kind of on the peripheral. I suppose that's most people, right? Uh, yeah, Anthony Kennedy announced retirement. Trump is uh, appointing, nominating uh, this guy named Kavanaugh. He's going to go in, Brett Kavanaugh. He's going to be a second Supreme Court uh, justice that Donald Trump has been able to nominate. And that was uh, arguably a sufficient reason in and of itself. The fact that uh, vacancies were expected to happen uh, under whoever was going to be president this time around. That was sufficient reason to not vote Hillary and to vote Trump if he does nothing else except for appoint good conservatives to the Supreme Court. He will have done all that he needed to do to have earned my vote. And for that matter, if all that happens from those Supreme Court justices being appointed is that Roe versus Wade gets overturned, then Donald Trump will go down in my book as the single greatest president 
uh, America has ever had. That is all it takes in my book. If he set in motion the uh, outlawing the end of uh, abortion in the United States of America, if he sets that in motion and has set that in motion, I think, then the left recognizes it. They're in a panic. Uh, if that is the case, then he has gone down, in my book, as the single greatest president uh, America has ever had. And you can, you can quote me on that. Uh, but it, it's remarkable to me because here I've been trying to comment things on Facebook this week, uh, asking honest questions about, you know, why is it that we have this double standard as far as political involvement? It's, it's okay to encourage Christians to vote, to vote their conscience. Now, if you're a church with 501c3 status, uh, we can't tell you who to vote for. We can't talk about the candidates in particular. We can't talk about the political issues in particular, or else we jeopardize our 501c3 status. Uh, so the church is muzzled. Christian leaders are muzzled to some extent. Some speak out uh, regardless, but uh, most have uh, come up with super spiritual sounding reasons for why they don't talk about that rather than admitting that uh, they're concerned about their tax-free status. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, we vote. Uh, we say we're praying for our leaders. Uh, many of us say, God bless America, and things like that. We celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate uh, Memorial Day, Labor Day. But why is it that, uh, you know, when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road, let's talk about the political issues. Let's talk about the policies. Let's talk about proposals. Let's talk about parties and platforms and principles. What it would a good godly nation and people be for and against? And what does the Bible say about this? And what is it we're actually praying for? We're praying that God would bless America. What kind of a country would he bless? Uh, if we're praying for our leaders, what are we praying about? What are we asking God to intervene and do? Are we praying that he would give them guidance to make good godly biblical decisions? Well, maybe if that's the case— we should be comfortable with talking about what would be good godly decisions and talking about it at length, not in a superficial way, not in a dip your toe in the water sort of a way, not in a, oh, I'm just going to do this as a hobby on the side to look like I'm engaged and intelligent and informed and all of that and to go along with the flow when other people are, are upset about something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those, those damned Democrats. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Oh, taxes are too high. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm with you on that. And then the moment somebody expresses a dissenting view, we clam up, stop talking. You know, that's a bunch of cowardice is what it is. It's cowardice. It, it is a uh, lack of moral uh, resolve, lack of moral clarity. It's lack of uh, endurance. You know, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. According to Proverbs, you are weak. You know, it's it's all talk, no action. But if you get Christians that are going to actually talk about, hey, what does the Bible actually say that would be relevant to uh, policy decisions, to the platforms of the various parties, uh, to the supposed political issues like child sacrifice, uh, a.k.a. abortion? You know, what does the Bible say about that? Well, it has some things to say about it. And if uh, it's not OK for us to talk about that, well, why is it in the scriptures? Why is it in the Bible? If we're not supposed to talk about it, riddle me that, Batman. Why is it in there if we're not supposed to talk about it? Well, the, the simple answer is it's in there because we are supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to make sense of it. And to fail to do so is cowardice, plain and simple. And the only reason that I can think of uh, for why Christians do that, they, they'll give lip service to wanting America to be a good godly nation, and then they... Uh, shout down anybody who actually talks about the, the practical details of what that would look like. The reason for that is they're afraid. They're afraid that talk will turn into proposed action and that they're not ready to actually take any action. That's what it is. They're afraid. They're afraid that like Ananias and Sapphira, if they sell their property, they're going to feel obligated to give uh, everything and the cost is going to be too high. They want to keep their property or keep the proceeds from selling their property. Now, they'll pretend that they've given a little bit, 
uh, or all of it when they've kept a fair chunk back, but that's dishonest. You know, uh, Jesus says at several points, you know, do not be like the hypocrites, like the Pharisees. Do not be like the religious leaders who love to pray on street corners so they can be seen by men. You know, when you pray, go into your closet, pray in secret so that your father who sees in secret will hear you. Listen to your prayers. When you give, don't give and announce your giving with gongs and trumpets. You know, don't left don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. You do it privately, secretly, because you're God. God, your <laughs> your God, uh, the Lord your God is going to see that in secret and reward you if you're doing it for the right reasons, for the right motives, not to be seen by men. I think so. Also, you know, there's a, an implication to that. Yes, someone will say, well, okay, that verse is about this. It's not about what you're about to make it into. But the implications are clear for that and many other passages. We are not supposed to care so much about what people think of us. We're just not. And who cares if your Aunt Sally is a, a lesbian, transgender Democrat, as she's going to be upset that you are pro-life and that you're voting conservative because you're for liberty, because you believe that that aligns most closely with the Bible, and you can articulate that, and you want to articulate that, but you're afraid that she won't invite you over for dinner anymore, uh, or have anything to do with you, or she's going to cut you out of your out out of her will, or whatever. You know, who cares if your boss maybe has a little bit of uh, feminist tendencies, and uh, they're going to be offended if you uh, try to have a, a biblical view on gender, biblical attitude on gender. You know, who cares if uh, your neighbor uh, down the street is uh, quote-unquote pro-choice? We should be celebrating that Roe versus Wade may, in short order, be overturned. That is fantastic. You, know, you want to make America great again, America needs to be good. You want to make America great again, stop murdering babies by the thousands every single day. 60 million babies, innocent babies murdered in America. It's a, it's a Holocaust uh, and then some, several times over what Hitler actually did with the Jews, with the Holocaust, with the concentration camps, with Auschwitz, Buchenwald. Uh, it is it is something that needs to stop right now. And I don't care if it brings a civil war. I don't care if uh, somebody won't hire you. I don't care if they cut you out of their will. I don't care if, if they're that far along that for you to take these positions on right and wrong and to draw a line in the sand and say you are for these things, they would cut you out of their life. They would punish you for it. Then why do you want their favor anyways? Think about that. What does that say? Why do you care so much about what they think of you? And should you? And do we not have a responsibility? If I'm driving by the alleyway, I see a man is being beaten and robbed and a woman's being raped. Do I worry what the mugger, what the rapist is going to think of me if I step in to intervene? Is that what my thought is? If so, God help me. And if that's you, God help you. You're a coward. And if my calling you a coward offends you, guess what? I don't put any stock in your opinion because you're a coward and I don't respect you. You have to earn respect by having character. I think also this whole concept of setting your house in perfect order is very good to a point. I think if we each do our part to have homes that are orderly, uh, to remove planks from our own eyes, to be honest, to be objective, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, I think we will become a better nation and better people. And then also, too, if we're blameless because we've set our house in perfect order, it's much easier to effect change. 
when there aren't all of these skeletons in our closet, people can point to and say, ah, 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 no, 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 no. I don't care what you think about that. I don't want to hear what you have to say about that. Don't advocate for change on this. Look at your stuff. You, you've got a mess over there. You hypocrite. Get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. Right. So anyway, with that, I conclude this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Uh, if you have any additional thoughts, please find me on social media. Feel free to. Uh, actually, I got a text here uh, this morning. It was super cool from uh, Eric Roussel. And he was uh, he's somebody, he's not really uh, somebody I know very well. He's a friend of a friend. And I uh, met him several years back. We're connected on Facebook. And uh, he texted me this morning. He says, hey, just wanted to let you know. You know remember me? Uh, you met me at uh, JR's house. And this is my wife, and this is who I am. And I just want to let you know, I was just listening to episode three of your podcast. And it's really good. You're doing a really great job. Keep it up. And I thought, man, that's, that's super cool. That's super exciting, super encouraging. So please, if you like the podcast, uh, please uh, message me. Let me know what you liked about it. Uh, if you have additional thoughts to add, things that I didn't mention that I should have, uh, please, you know, let me know that too. I, you know, help me to become wiser. If I said something that you think I'm incorrect in, uh, make your case. I, I refuse to uh, just take your word for it right off. I will probably ask you some questions, so be prepared for that. But I'd love to dialogue with you. Uh, if you can't find me on social media, you're not trying. Uh, just Google Garrett Ashley Mullet. I'll pop up. I think there's like a, a million hits uh, that show up for uh, me and for various accounts. But you can also uh, Gmail me. Uh, my Gmail is Garrett Mullet, G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. In any event, though, thank you for listening and God bless.